I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about my personal sin struggles. Is that okay? Is that, amen, is that okay I talk a little bit about my personal sin struggles? I, I am not, if you're, if you're looking for a sinless pastor, it is not me, and good luck with that. <laughs> you know, if you're looking for the pastor that's got it all together, it's not me, and good luck finding him or her. They're not out there. If we could be sinless, if we could be perfect, the scripture is very clear that Jesus died for nothing. Right? So I'm not that guy. If you need that guy, it's not me. And I want you to be cautious of the one who claims to be that guy. Because it ain't him either. But I have, I have personal sin struggles. I'm tempted. There are things that come up that I am tempted to do. And sometimes, even though I know it's wrong, I give in to them. Anybody that tells you they don't is a liar. John is very clear about that in one of his epistles, that if we say we have no sin, we are liars and we deceive ourselves. That doesn't mean that we sin and go, yeah, let's just go sin it up and grace may abound. But, but we all struggle and there's all times when we're falling short in that and when we're falling into sin and sometimes when we're willfully choosing sin. I have those struggles in my own life. There are times when I know that the way that I'm choosing to react in the moment, I'm like, this is wrong, but for whatever the reason, it comes out. Sometimes when I'm watching a movie or this or that or the other thing, and, and the Lord convicts me and says, stop, and I, and I make an excuse and I go on and I watch it. And my sin bothers me. And sometimes after this happens, I, I start to feel powerless. Sometimes when I fall into some of these sins, I, I just, I sit down and I'm like, God, why? What am I doing in this place again? How did I get here again? How did I get to this moment of of I, I, I made it okay, and I'm like, well, it's just going to be this one more time, God, and then I'm going to quit, or whatever it is. How did I get here again? How did I get to this point where this looked like a good idea enough that I embraced it? Or I thought that it was going to be hidden enough that there'd be no conviction? i got to believe I'm not the only one. And the Apostle Paul says that while he was roaming this earth, he was in the same position. The Apostle Paul said in Romans, I want to live holy. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about this. He says, I, I look at the law of the Lord and I agree that it is good and it is holy. A, a New Testament affirmation that the law still applies to us. And it is good and it is holy and I want to do what the law says. But I find myself doing the very thing that I hate. 
All the while, I'm like, but I know this is the right thing to do. Why am I here? Why am I like a dog returning to his vomit, as the Proverbs say? Why am I back in this? Why am I broken here again? This is the Apostle Paul. He writes in another epistle that this is a trustworthy and reliable saying that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The only reason I know that Paul was a bigger sinner than me when it came to that is because it says in the Scriptures. And the Scriptures can't be wrong. But I find myself like Paul and, and I'm wrestling with this and I'm, and I'm going, I know that the right thing to do and I know all of this. And I don't think I'm alone with just Paul and I. I got to wonder. I got to believe there's at least one brother or sister here today who's in the same place. Can I get a witness? Anybody ever feel that way? You're, you're in there and, and, and you're, 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 you're stuck. You're back in this place where you know, you know it's not right. You know it's not good. And you don't want to be there yet somehow or another you've picked it up again and you're broken hearted. And you're like, Why? Paul goes on in chapter 7 of the book of Romans to actually say these words. He cries out at the end, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. But what does this mean? Paul poses a question, then gives an answer. Who will save me? Thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. He's answering. He's not praising Jesus in the sense of saying, this is random glory to God right in the middle of his, of his despair. He's saying, Jesus can. But I think we overlook this. I think many of us don't understand the answers he's giving. He's given this answer and I think many of us overlook it and we're, we go, yeah, that's great. Jesus can save us from it. But, but what does that mean? I mean, we think about this. We think about Jesus Christ as Savior. That's one of the folds of the fourfold gospel. Friends, I want to tell you something. What Paul is saying here is saving you from an eternity of hell is not the end of Jesus as Savior. He hasn't merely saved you from a penalty in hell. He's also saved you from the need to be bound to sin for the rest of your life. Which naturally flows into Christ our sanctifier. He's not only saved you from the penalty of sin, but He has saved you from the bondage of sin. But friend, every promise that Jesus Christ gives, we have to appropriate by faith. I could tell Ron right now, I got $1,000 in my wallet for you, Ron. It's there for you, buddy. He's got to come appropriate that, that $1,000 to get it. It's not really there, Ron. I'm lying. <laughs> He started to appropriate. So how do we appropriate this? How do we, how do we work through this? I mean, how do we, and this is why 
we need all of the scriptures. Right? We can't just focus on our pet verse. We have to, we have to interpret scripture in light of the scripture. Listen to me. I want to just make a correction real quick to something about inductive Bible study. Inductive Bible study is not dissecting every single word in a passage of scripture. It is studying scripture in light of scripture. Okay? You have to, you can't just dissect what's right there. That, that's part of it. But you gotta say, what does the rest of the canon say about this? Right? Let me tell you why. Because if you do it like that, if you do it where you're just dissecting that, you come away from the, and this is a side note, but I want you to understand why we're, why we're looking at Romans 7 and Hebrews chapter 4 together. Because if I look at Mark 16 by itself, I play with snakes and drink poison at church. Because it says that if any poison crosses my lip or if any deadly serpent bites me, I'm okay. And there's people who've just studied that and they play with snakes and they drink poison. Right? And they've forgotten the rest of Scripture. By the way, friends, if I ever see poison or snakes come out, I will rebuke you publicly as a heretic. Okay? We don't do that. Because, because just like Jesus, he was tempted. Satan tempted him and said, jump off the temple. He says that your angels will bear you up unless you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus replied, with another place in the canon of Scripture, yeah, but it also says, don't tempt the Lord your God. Right? Jesus, looking at the passage of Scripture, looked at what the rest of the Bible had to say. Amen? So this is why we're looking at the Romans and the Hebrews thing together. So the author of Hebrews specifically addresses this issue in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And I want to read that passage to you today. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from a different translation. Let's say it together. That's okay. Amen? My translation, I use the ESV. You might be using something else, and that's okay. All right. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's who that great high priest is, by the way. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, This is the answer explained from Romans chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask that everything that happens in this place today would glorify and honor you. We pray that you would speak to hearts and minds. Lord, we pray for a radical transformation in people today. Lord, I pray right now that agendas would be let go. Lord, there are those of us who are afraid of this and there are those of us who want to take this too far to a place that it's not meant to go either and there are those of us who want to be in the middle and Lord, we confess all of that to you as our will and we ask rather than our will be done, your will be done. Lord, encourage us, grow us, strengthen us and change us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So, over my last couple of sermons, and really over the first four chapters of the book of Hebrews, I have, I have repeatedly stated that God wants us to live holy. We cannot live any way we want to and call ourselves Christians. We cannot go do whatever we want to and say, yeah, Jesus is down with this. We can't say, well, this is my pet thing and and God likes what I like and he hates what I hate. And we do that a lot. Right? Let me give you one glaring way that we as conservatives do that. We say that homosexuality is a worse sin than disobeying your parents. But according to God, if you break the if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of breaking it all. Those are not different levels of sin in God's mind. They're the exact same. I know that's tough. We don't like, but see, but but that one's disgusting. Yeah, gotcha. Some of you feel like, oh, it's, uh, you know, and your God despises what you despise, and He loves what you love. Like, see, you know, my God, He He He's like, oh, you know, homosexuality is bad, and people go to hell for that. But man, He likes the fact that I gorge myself on ice cream uncontrollably. Right? I am like eleven months pregnant with a vanilla ice cream baby. And God's okay with my gluttony, right? No. No, he's not okay with it. No, he's not okay with it. It's idolatry. If God loves what you love and he hates what you hate, he's not God. He's a God that you created in your mind. My God convicts me. There's plenty of stuff that I love that he's like, uh, dude, what are you doing? Stop. Right? And there's plenty of stuff that I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that. And God's like, hey, dude, seriously, you got to step in there and, and, and do this. Yeah, God calls me dude. He, he talks to me in ways that I understand. Right? I don't think he calls me dude as a compliment either. <laughs> But God wants us to live holy. We've talked about that. I mean, chapter 4 of the of, and, and chapter 3 of Hebrews gets kind of annoying to me, really. Especially when you're trying to preach through it verse by verse. Because the author of Hebrews keeps going back and quoting the same psalm. Don't harden your heart as in the days of rebellion. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't, and I'm like, okay, already quit. Can we move on? And he's like, no, we can't move on. We have to have this desire for personal holiness. God is holy. But let's assume we all agree on that, that God is holy and He wants us to live holy lives, set apart and consecrated unto Him. Let's say we agree on that. What are the keys to holiness? What are the keys to holiness? How does this work? Listen to me. This is not three easy steps to being filled with the Spirit. I'm talking about principles, not steps. So you may not like how I phrase the principle, but it's not a step. Try to wrestle with what I'm saying. I don't preach three easy steps to this, five easy steps to this, because it ain't in the Bible. We have to wrestle through the principles. So Jesus, God's only begotten son, came in the likeness of sinful man, and yet he lived a life that was utterly sinless. This is the first key to holiness. Jesus, 
God's only begotten, came and lived a perfect, sinless life. The New Testament defines sin, friends. Transgression of the law. It says it in the New Testament. Sin is transgression of the law. Some translations say sin is lawlessness. Jesus never transgressed the law. Ever. This is in verse 14. He says this. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we have this high priest who's come to the earth. And then the end of verse 15 says that he was without sin. But in verse 14 we see Jesus has come. He's come to function as the intermediary. I want you to point at the intermediary between you and God. Point at the intermediary. Go ahead. Point at him. Point at him. You should be pointing at where you think Jesus is. The pastor is not the new priest inside the priesthood of all believers. Do I have some of those responsibilities? Absolutely. The Aaronic priesthood in the book of, in the book of Leviticus is told that it, it's their job to teach the word of God to the people. Okay, I've got that responsibility. But we have one intermediary between us and God, the man Jesus Christ. One. So Jesus, he came and he lived this perfect sinless life and he is the intermediary between you and God. But you know, sometimes I think the fact that Jesus came and lived a perfect sinless life kind of makes us feel helpless and hopeless. I mean, let's be honest with one another. The scriptures teach us that Jesus was fully God and yet fully man. He was tempted and tried like we were. And yet he defeated that temptation and he was sinless and we're supposed to imitate him. Jesus is our ultimate example. We're supposed to imitate his life and character. And we're even taught through scripture that it's possible. And yet we find ourselves like the Apostle Paul. Like Pastor Jerry. Wanting to do the right thing. Wanting to serve God. And finding ourselves doing the wrong thing. Finding ourselves in rebellion. And we're like, Jesus did it. I'm supposed to imitate him. Oh, I'm hopeless. It's kind of like Paul said in, in, in chapter 7 of Romans. That which promised life brought death. And Jesus is the Word of God. He's the embodiment of God's law. And I think sometimes, rather than life that He brings to us, we feel like He brings death because it's like, I can't live up. I have tried to do this. We find time and again that we fail miserably. We can't live up to God's standard of holiness. It's almost like, dare I say it, God's playing a sadistic game with us. I mean, I'm just being honest and voicing what you've probably thought in your head at some point. I know it's not PC to do it. I know. But come on, man, let's get real. It's like God's playing a sadistic game with us. Can I tell you, you're on the right track if you feel that way. If you feel like, man, I'm an utter failure. 
I can't do this. Good. It's the way you're supposed to feel. This is what we call in the Christian and Missionary Alliance the crisis of sanctification. I'm old school alliance, baby. We believe that that sanctification, that personal holiness is a crisis and a progressive experience. And I will not budge on that doctrine. Number one, because if I budged, I'd have to leave the alliance. Number two, I think they're right. I didn't create the doctrine. A doctrine of our denomination was created by multiple people coming together and conferring with one another and praying through and saying, what is God saying to us? It's a crisis experience. The crisis is you're sitting there and you're going, I know that the law is good. I know that holiness is good, but I can't do it no matter how hard I try. And so in this moment of crisis, we say, God, I can't do what you've called me to do. I can't be what you've called me to be. Friends, Just because you got saved doesn't mean you can follow Jesus any more effectively than when you were lost. I give you the evidence. Every page of the Bible, it's not on any of them. The Bible doesn't say just because you're born again means you can live the way he's called you to. The evidence is on every page. It's not there. Find a place that says just because you got saved you can live holy and I will stand and I will publicly repent from this doctrine. It's not there. Actually something quite different is there. Even though God expects us to live holy and upright lives, He knows full well we cannot do this on our own. That's why verse 15 is there, friends. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now let me just ask you a question. What other reason besides God knowing we cannot live holy like He wants Should he say that Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses? What point is there for Jesus to sympathize with us if we can live these holy lives? When I have sympathy for somebody, that causes me to do something for them. Anybody can agree with that experience? Amen? Like if you look at somebody's plight and you have sympathy on their plight, you get involved and help them. Amen? Right? He sympathizes with us in our weakness. God is saying through the person and work of Jesus Christ, Kirby, I I get your struggles, man. I understand them. I know that you want to be good, and yet you can't. Missy, I understand what's going on inside your heart. I know that you want to serve me with everything you've got. I know that you want to give it all to me. And yet you find yourself returning to certain things over and over again. I understand. And I can help. Sarah, I can get involved in all of these issues that dominate and control. Mark, 
Those things which you believe are impossible for you, they're possible with me. This is what the Spirit of God is saying, Dave. He's saying, I get it, man. I get it. And I'm going to make a way for you to have victory. That's what God's saying. I'm going to make a way. And friends, this way was planned from the foundation of the world. Genesis chapter 3. First prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. Spoken by the Father Himself. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise His heel. Jesus getting involved was the plan from before day one. It wasn't an afterthought. Before God said on the first day, let there be light, He had the plan. He had the plan. I guess what I'm trying to get to in all of this is, is, in other words, Jesus didn't come to condemn us for our sin, but rather He came to give us hope. A hope that through His personal empowerment in our lives that we can rise above sin. Jesus came to give us life and a hope. He didn't come to condemn Friends, we like to quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But I got news to you. There's more to chapter 3. He says I, Jesus didn't come in the world to condemn the world because it was condemned already. He didn't come to condemn you, to make you feel like a dirt ball, to make you feel all these things. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we're pretty proud. Sometimes we're pretty arrogant. And the law of God brings us humility and says, hey, what you're doing? Stop justifying yourself. This is sin. Right? But we're condemned already. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to build you up, to give you hope. Verse 16 says that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now I get to the fun part of the sermon. I can walk away from it. I don't have to read anything anymore right now for a while. Do you have a need? No, seriously, I'm begging you to admit you have a need. If it is helpful, I will get down on my knees and I will beg you through tears to admit that you have a need. To admit that you are desperate, that you cannot live this life the way He's called you to live it. That you are struggling with depression. That you are struggling with addictions. You are struggling with how to raise your kids. You're struggling with all these things. That you want to do the right thing, but you can't. And you keep finding yourself over and over and over again failing. And you've got a need. Please. For God's sake, admit you have a need. Admit that you can't do this on your own. Admit that your need goes beyond wanting to get in heaven. Jesus, I have a need. I am dirty. David Crowder Band sings it like this. I am prone to sin, total depravity. Stained with dirt. 
And he talks about it in that, in that song, prone to depravity. He says, but through the dirt, flowers come up. Admit you're needy. Admit that you're desperate. Paul was admitting in chapter 7 of Romans that he had a need, that he wanted to do right, but he couldn't. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he couldn't. And guys, more Bible study is not the key. Let's get a cheer for that one. More Bible study is not the key. No, I don't think you believe me. Paul was the most well-versed person on the scriptures on the face of the planet while he was alive. He sat at the feet of the premier rabbi, Gamaliel, and he was his star pupil. Most likely, Paul was on the Sanhedrin in his mid-30s, which would make him the youngest person ever to sit on the ruling council of the Jews. And you couldn't do that unless you knew what the word said. Paul was a word-studying fool. He knew it, baby. You had to memorize entire books to continue to advance in the schools of the rabbi. And when you, if you couldn't go so far, when you hit bar mitzvah, you went back to the family job. Paul kept getting to go on. And he got to the premier teacher, Gamaliel. He sat at his feet and he learned it. He knew what the word said in and out. And he was the number one enemy to the church. He was killing people because he knew it, but he didn't know it, and he certainly didn't know it. He knew it intellectually, but it wasn't sunk down into his heart what it really meant, and it certainly wasn't coming out of his hand as they're coming and taking and laying their coats at his feet while he presides over the stoning of Stephen. It certainly wasn't coming out of his hands when he was on the road to Damascus, going to Damascus for the sole purpose of killing Christians, and this man was versed in what the scripture said. Guys, it's now more Bible study that we need. It's time for us to start believing what it says. It's time for us to stop making excuses about why this passage or that passage doesn't apply or I see it this way or I see it that way. I mean, come on, guys. It's called relativism. It's what our problem is with all of these false religions in the world and yet it's taken over inside the church. Well, that's truth to you. That's what you need to understand. But, but that's not the truth to me. But friends, we're to admit that we have a need. And it says it right here. To find grace and help in our time of need. Can you admit you have a need? You got to admit you have a need. God promised promise to us in this area of our life is that he will get personally involved in bringing about victory. That we can live a spirit-filled life and let your agenda go of what you think that looks like or what you think I think it looks like. God says he's going to get personally involved in here. John Stumbo in that video, he mentions this passage of scripture. He mentions Acts chapter 1 verses 8, verse 8, where it says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But what does he say before that? He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you.
You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. For what? For what? To be what? Shout it out. To be what? Come on. What's what Acts 1.8 say? You'll receive power to be my witnesses. witnesses. You know what witnesses need for a witness to be credible? A lifestyle that lines up with what they're testifying about. Amen? I mean, if I come to you and I tell you that Jesus is the most important thing and that we should obey and follow him, and yet all throughout my life I'm living like hell, am I a credible witness? Come on. Say it out. Am I credible? No, I'm not credible. It's incredible that I'm claiming it. But I'm not credible. It's not he's going to just empower you to go out there and have the gift of evangelism and share. He's going to be able to empower you to have a life that lives up to that. That has a life that can follow Jesus. That has a life that can actually live out the commands of Scripture. So friends, first we have to admit we have a need, and then we lay hold of the promise that God has made to help us. And we approach His throne in confidence. That's what it says in the beginning of verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near. Um, Kirby, I I don't know... um, Maybe you don't have it. Maybe you do have it. But um, I really, Sarah and I are on some hard times. I, I really need to borrow 20 bucks. I don't know if you've got it. Could you loan me 20 bucks? Is that very confident? Missy, I feel like the Lord uh, has said that maybe you can help me. And um, I, I, maybe you can't. I don't know. I know you got your struggles. But Sarah and I need 20 bucks. Is that something you could be able to do? Is that confident? It's a little more confident, but less. Keith, brother, I know you love me. Sarah and I have fallen on some hard times. Can I borrow 20 bucks? Was that confident? That, see, I built my confidence as I went across the room. Fran, give me $20. <laughs> was that confident? No, that was cocky. <laughs> okay, you can take confidence too far. You can take confidence too far and become demanding. Right? But we are to approach with confidence, not, oh, Jesus, maybe if you got time, if you could look my way, you know, I'm kind of needing you here, but I know you're busy and you got like a whole world to take care of and, you know, that's not confidence. Jesus, your word says that you will empower me and I am desperate for that. So please pour it out on me. Friends, that's confidence. We have to approach with confidence. We have, to, we have to have confidence in the promise that he'll do it. <clears throat> After we approach God in confidence, we must wait until he has fulfilled the promise. And this is the part that I don't think we get in Alliance churches today, in a lot of Alliance churches. I want to tell you the, the damnable lie and then explain to you scripturally why it's a damnable lie. There's this lie that says if you come and ask Jesus to fill you with the Spirit, with confidence, He does it. It's a done deal. Even if you don't sense anything, even if you don't feel anything, hey, you walk away, it happened. That is a L-I-E. That is a lie. There is nowhere in Scripture that says that. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, right before he tells them that his spirit will come, he says these words as he's getting ready to leave. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. He said, don't leave, guys. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wait till it happens. Now, if I'm waiting till it happens, and I can't leave Jerusalem until it happens, I'm going to assume there that I will know when it does. That, it, I mean, that's just logic, isn't it? Wait till this happens. Hmm. I probably am going to understand when it did then. Now, I want to give you the rest of the book of Acts as an example. Every single time somebody got baptized in the Spirit, they knew about it. Some groups would say that every single time they got baptized in the Spirit, they spoke in tongues, but that's not true. There are seven times in the book of Acts where new disciples get filled with the Spirit. Three times the initial evidence is tongues. Four times it's not. Paul's initial evidence of being filled with the Spirit was not tongues. Go read about his Damascus journey. His initial evidence was the gift of evangelism. Scales fell off his eyes. He got healed and he didn't, it says nothing about him speaking in tongues. It says he went out in the streets and started proclaiming Jesus as the Savior of the world. Now don't get me wrong, friends. I believe in tongues. I believe in a prayer language that's a separate thing than tongues. I have a prayer language. And there's about 20 other people in this church that I'm aware of that have a prayer language. And I'm not embarrassed by it. Okay? But, friends, the point that I'm trying to make is that every time somebody got filled with the Spirit, they knew. They didn't have to guess. They didn't have to say, well, we took you at your word. No, Jesus said, you stay in Jerusalem till it happens. Don't leave. And I want to tell you, there were people who left before it happened. One of them shared the gospel with Apollos. And when we look into the book of Acts around chapter 19, Apollos is out and he's preaching Jesus. And they come up to him, Priscilla and Aquila, Say, uh, uh, dude, have you heard about the baptism of the Spirit? He's like, no, I hadn't heard about that, man. All I heard was, he said, well, what baptism? Well, just water baptism. I said, yeah, yeah, well, we need to explain this to you. And they sit him down and they show him about the baptism of the Spirit. Hmm. Somebody clearly left Jerusalem without hearing about it. Without having it happen to them. And it was lost in that church. And you know, we don't really hear about that church too much. It's the church at what? Don't know. You know where we hear about it? When Priscilla and Aquila run into the preacher and find out that the preacher doesn't know anything about the Spirit being coming and, and filling people. And I want you to understand something. This isn't just one more thing. This is a subsequent act of grace and there are Hundreds, thousands, perhaps millions of subsequent acts of grace. There is no, I got saved, I got filled with the Spirit, I'm good to go, now I live my life. No. Discipleship is a process that never ends. Now, <clears throat> some of you remember, I can't remember her name. She had the little lamb chop. 
Sherry, yeah. And she had a song. This is the song that never ends. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. Some people started singing it, not knowing what it was. And they'll continue singing it forever just because this is the song, right? No, no, we're going to change the words. Discipleship is the name of the song. This is the process that never ends. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. Some people started experiencing it, not knowing what it was, and they'll continue growing in it forever just because this is the process that never ends. Nobody gets discipled past tense, friends. If you got discipled past tense, that means you're not a disciple right now. That means you used to be. Nobody is finishes. I mean, the scripture is very clear. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when the consummation at the end of the age, when Jesus comes back, then we'll fully know as we're already fully known. But that ain't happened yet. Guys, grab a hold of this. <clears throat> if you're filled with the Spirit... You're entering into a process that never ends. This is not a one-time thing. This is not a, I got filled and now I'm done and I'm good to go. No, no, no. It's an everyday thing. It's an every morning. I roll out of the bed. Here I am, Jesus, busted and needy still, just like Paul. Fill me again. Please, Jesus, fill me again. Please fill me again. And finally, we must realize that when we yield to God's Spirit filling us, that we are no longer, that it is no longer us who is in control of our own life. Rather, we have surrendered all control to Him. We have to realize that He's in control when we surrender to Him. That He's not in control, or excuse me, that we're not in control, that He is in control. And this is why a lot of people won't get baptized in God's Spirit. Because when you surrender control to Him, you're saying, Jesus, you're in charge. I will go where you go. I will do what you tell me to do. I will love who you tell me to love. I will say the things that you want me to say. I will live the way that you want me to live. Your spirit is in control. I am no longer in charge. A.W. Tozer, Alliance Statement and Spokesperson, said this. I'm paraphrasing him. He said, the problem why a lot of our churches aren't preaching about the filling of the Spirit is because nobody wants to be controlled by a Spirit. But friends, you're going to be controlled by a Spirit whether you like it or not. It's just a matter of choosing which one it is. You might find that uh, when, you, when He fills you with the Spirit, you're not allowed to do the things that you want to do anymore. That He tells you, hey, stop that. You're not allowed to condemn the people you like to condemn anymore. He says, hey, stop that. You're not allowed to have pet sins and, and all that anymore. He says, quit it. He's in control. He gets to call the shots. He gets all of you. And I will tell you something. Jesus will have all of you or none of you. This is bore out in the scriptures. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. 
See, friends, the crisis of sanctification is this moment where you say, I can't live this way anymore, and, and it's not, so Jesus, come empower me and give me the strength to live it. No, no. It's Jesus, I can't do it, so you come and live again through me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Let me tell you something. Anything that you see good in Jerry Breedlove or John Stumbo or A.W. Tozer, or Ravi Zacharias, it's not them. It's Jesus. John Stumbo said that in his video message. His leadership is only as good as the level of yielding that he has to God's control. You don't want me to lead OCCA, I promise you. You do not want me to lead OCCA. Guaranteed. Because I will destroy us. What you want is for me to yield to God and say, God, you lead. You lead through me. You lead through me. And realizing that we're not in control anymore also means that we must yield daily for a fresh infilling after the initial infilling. Jesus, it didn't work yesterday. It ain't going to work today either. This is Christ our sanctifier. This is the second fold of the fourfold gospel. Sanctification is both a crisis and progressive experience wrought in the life of the believer. It's our statement of faith, friends. It's what we believe. Subsequent to conversion. Subsequent means after. Sometimes, for some people, that happens an hour after. Because somebody teaches them about it. Sometimes it happens years after. But it does not happen at the moment of salvation. Because I think we would all agree that the apostles were all saved at the point where Jesus is standing there before Pentecost and says, y'all need to stay in town and have a prayer meeting until the Spirit comes. Those were born-again guys. There was 120 people got together for a prayer meeting, saved, born again, wanting to live for Jesus, but waiting for the empowerment. Amen? I don't think I'm out on a limb here. I think I'm, I think I'm right where the scriptures say that we're supposed to be. But don't take my word. There's homework. Now, as we look at today's homework, and we're getting ready to end the sermon, but the service isn't over. We got Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 on Monday. Tuesday, we got Romans 8, 1 through 11. Wednesday, Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Thursday, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 18. Friday, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. And Saturday, Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. These are passages of Scripture that talk about us living and yielded to God's Spirit in our lives. The purpose of that, the power that comes in that. And it's not every verse that's in there. These are the ones that I feel like the Lord specifically told me to choose. But friends, if you don't respond to God today with a need, I think you might have missed the point. This will shore you up as you go throughout the week, but I'm asking you to respond today. So we're going to pray. The band's going to come back up and we're going to have an extended altar time. And if you need to go because you got somewhere you got to be, go for it. But for those who are ready to wait for the Spirit to come on them, we're going to wait with you. We're going to wait with you. 
The last time I preached about this, nobody responded, and I understand. I understand. But we're going to wait for those who want to be filled. So let's pray. Father, we ask you to speak into our lives. To have your way. To fill us with your spirit. Lord, take over. Take total control here today. We surrender it all to you. Not just some of it, but all of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the ushers are going to come here in the very beginning of this song to receive the offering so that we don't have to worry about it while we're having an altar call time. So guys.